Good morning. A belated happy Thanksgiving. I hope that all of you enjoyed yourselves very much. I can see we enjoyed ourselves during our time of greeting as well. It's nice to see some of you. Uh, it has been a while for some of you and others we see every week, and we're always grateful for our church family. On the screen right now, you'll see that there is a lovely graphic that we had an opportunity recently presented to us from the United Methodist Church, who are our landlord church. Uh, we had, as many of you know, uh, in order to facilitate CBS, Community Bible Study, uh, which takes place here on Friday evenings, we had installed a rather large television, uh, which is the donation and gift of uh, Harvest Christian Fellowship in the city. They gave us this really, really large TV, too big to be in any of the classrooms. So I'm thinking, what are we going to do with this? So we spoke to them and said, listen, we'll, we'll install this downstairs, uh, hook it up to a, an Apple TV, and uh, it'll be available not just to us to use for CBS and other events in the fellowship hall, but also to the United Methodist Church if they feel so inclined to need it for something. So they came up with this idea. They signed up for, I don't know if many of you are probably familiar with Sight and Sound, and uh, it is a trek out to Sight and Sound. I've been out there many times. Uh, it is a, is a joy. Uh, I know some of you go there every year to see the new production. Well, Miracle of Christmas is the production that's going to be live streamed. They have signed up and paid for uh, a license that allows them to live stream on December 3rd, which is next Sunday at 3, so you have time to go out, get lunch, and come back. It'll be right down in our own fellowship hall. It's free of charge. We'll have, you know, goodies and and a time of uh, refreshments, but also just a time of fellowship. But most importantly, I think the best part of that is we'll have an opportunity to kind of connect with and reach out to some of the folks in the United Methodist Church. And so uh, I am looking forward to it. I will certainly be there. If you're available, I want to encourage you to join us. That should be a fun event. And again, uh, it's a lot closer down in the fellowship hall than in the middle of Pennsylvania. So if you've never been out to Sight and Sound, their productions are Broadway quality. They're really great. And it's on this rather large television that uh, we installed recently. So all is good news. A couple other reminders, of course, the Women's Conference will be taking place next Saturday. So if you haven't paid, uh, I was calling Vicki the enforcer. She was going around making sure everyone, everyone paid their, their, uh, their dues, so to speak. And uh, so there you have that. Uh, I guess that's pretty much everything I want to mention this morning in announcements, uh, except possibly the fact that we have our kids Christmas presentation taking place the following week. That would be the 10th, right? It's the 10th. I got that right. Uh, that's the following Sunday. And that is going to be across the street at the high school like it was last year. Actually, yeah. So we're looking forward to that. There's more information about that and little postcards you can take on your way out that will give you an opportunity to invite your neighbors and your friends. And then, of course, following that event, we'll also come back to the fellowship hall where, we, where the big TV is, where we will have our time of refreshments and fellowship. So with all of that, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning excited about the many events and opportunities that we do have for fellowship. We really, truly desire to grow closer to you and to one another. And to that end, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us a spirit of unity and harmony with each other, and even with those outside our fellowship, whether they be Christians or not, whether they be part of another religious system, 
or don't believe anything at all. May we have the opportunity to reach them with your love and with your truth. And may we always preach your truth in love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read you a scripture before we get into Genesis uh, in chapter 8. I want to read this. In Romans chapter 4, regarding Abraham, it says in verse 20, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. It is so important to know that God keeps his promises. Amen? That's the point of today's study. That's the application and the lesson we want to focus in on. God keeps his promises. God is faithful. We say faithful, and that means he keeps his promises. Whatever promises he has made to us collectively as his people and his word are faithful promises that we can trust in. Those individual promises are oftentimes a little harder to discern because uh, we don't have a book written to us per se, personally, and sometimes we can be a little confused about what his promises individually are to us. But if he truly makes a promise to us as individuals by the power of the Spirit through his word, or even outside of his word, you can be assured that his promises can be counted on. He is faithful to care for us through, as we say, every storm. And when we think of that through the storm, we're generally thinking of that example of Jesus with his disciples in the, in the storm on the boat. Either the time when he was uh, walking on the water or even the time when he was asleep in the boat. We think of going through the storm in that way. I want you to think about Noah and his family and all of the animals that God sent to them. They went through a storm unlike any other. A storm that literally destroyed the earth as we know it uh, and, and, and completely changed it. And so as we think about that, And as you think about this scripture today with me, I want you to realize God cared for and watched over Noah and his family and all of the animals within the ark for this time period, which you'll see was a rather long period of time. It's actually a year and 17 days. A year. We think of the 40 days and 40 nights, but it's much longer that they were actually on the ark. So for a year and 17 days in the ark, from the time he entered till the time he came out, God cared for him. God had cared for him before. God had cared for him after. The most important lesson today is to know that God cares for you. Can I hear an amen? Amen. We are very thankful around the times of Thanksgiving. We have an attitude of gratitude. We have a spirit of thanks. But it's important to remember to not just trust God and thank God for the past, but to trust God and thank God for the future. For you know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And are called according to his purposes. So as we go into, and and you've heard me say this already a lot lately, as we go into yet another time of darkness in our world, it's almost becoming, you know, glib to say it that way because it's like, oh, okay, another time of darkness? I mean, we all went through 9-11, most of us. Uh, Some of us maybe are a little too young to remember that at this point, but uh, we we went through COVID, you know, and some, some of our children don't know anything but post-COVID, right? So it's like we've gone through very dark times. And yet I see God is still faithful. Amen? See, I was hoping that would spontaneously create an amen. But I know none of you are Pentecostal. So I have to be very careful. I have a little in me. So occasionally I expect something and I don't get it. But anyway, I will say this. God is faithful. 
So let's look into the word today. Let's look at verses 1 through 13 in chapter 8 in the book of Genesis. And I love the opening words. But God remembered Noah. God remembers you. He knows you. That, that doesn't mean that he forgot or would ever forget. But when God remembers us, it, it just basically means he's faithful. He keeps his promises. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down. And on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After forty days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. And he reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days. And again, he sent the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. And he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. And by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. So that whole section in those 13 verses essentially recaps everything that happened while they were on the ark. In the last study, last week in chapter 7, we had a sort of a broad view of how they got on the ark and how the earth was destroyed. really remade, if you will, not destroyed completely, but completely remade. And this chapter gives us an understanding from the perspective inside the ark. Last chapter was more about what was happening outside the ark. Inside the ark, the place that God had provided, the place of salvation for Noah and his family and all of the animals with them, inside the ark, God was faithful. And this is, I I really hope you'll remember this one line. God is faithful to bring judgment, and God is faithful to his people in judgment. Those two things are true. God is faithful to bring judgment, and we're looking forward to, we're looking for God to bring judgment on a wicked world and usher in his kingdom, but at no point should we suspect or imagine that God will stop being faithful to us. Those two things are true. God is faithful to bring judgment, but he's faithful to us in judgment. And those are the contrasting messages of chapters 7 and 8. 7 tells us God was faithful to bring judgment. But chapter 8 tells us that God was faithful to his people in judgment. And so Noah spent, as I've said, a year and 17 days in the ark from the time he entered until the time he came out. Now see, Noah went into the ark seven days before it began to rain. Leave it to a math geek to do the math, but I did. And it began to rain the 17th day of the second month of his 600th year, and it rained for 40 days. And then God 
closed the springs of the deep where the water had come from the ground, and the floodgates of the heavens where the water had come from that water vapor layer described in Genesis 1. After 40 days of rain, God closed those things, and then God sent a wind over the whole earth to dry the earth, and the waters began to recede. And it was the wind that dried the water, and it must have been quite a wind because it it dried rather rapidly, all things considered. Now, the contents of that water vapor canopy had been emptied upon the earth's surface. It's as if, imagine, if you will, a mist or even thicker than a mist, there's this water layer surrounding the earth, protecting the earth, actually allowing men and women to live long lifespans because that water layer insulated and protected the earth from the neutrinos and the different particles that actually accelerate aging and actually break our body down. The radiations that cause cancers and other types of uh, ailments, we were shielded as a race from those things until the flood. And so that water vapor condenses. It waters the earth in such an incredible way. And then rain begins, and then all of the water from the deep, which was under the ground, described in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, bursts forth. And so you have a flood of groundwater, a flood of water from the, the heavens, as described, not just rain as we know it. A, a deluge, a flood of cataclysmic proportions which transformed the earth in ways that we only can look at retrospectively. And so today science looks at those things and it tries to imagine, well, how could the earth have mountains and valleys and ocean basins and all of the things we see? And so they come up with theories. And some of the theories make sense, uh, but they weren't there and they don't know. All you can do is look back and say, well, it might have happened this way. They, they suspect, you know, meteors. They suspect uh, climate change, ice ages, all of these different cycles of climate. And they try to figure out how that could have happened. And if you go with that theory, it does take millions and billions of years for those things to do to the earth what the flood did in, what did I say, well, 150 days. Most of that taking place in the 40 days and 40 nights of the deluge or the flood. So... Let me share a few things with you. New temperature fluctuations were now initiating these tremendous winds all over the earth. There wasn't a temperature fluctuation before the flood. The climate is completely changed at this point. So now you have these tremendous winds. And as the water subsided, the earth's crust collapsed. It collapsed deep into subterranean chambers, which we witness today. The collapse formed the present ocean basins. And the corresponding upward thrust formed the mountain ranges and plateaus. So what we see today in our Earth, the elevation changes and the tectonic plates and all of the things that we can perceive, all of those things were created or made very rapidly over a very short period of time through a cataclysm that would have destroyed all life on Earth if not for Noah and the ark. Now, is that a logical explanation? Well, it's a biblical explanation. It's scientifically provable, but to the extent that you can prove something that happened in the past. It's, as the scientific community sees it, a theory, but they dismiss it because God never seems to know what he's talking about. He's always giving us these myths that make way too much sense but couldn't possibly be true because if they're true, then we're morally accountable to God and his word, and we don't want that. 
So we're going to come up with something else. And I found that the else never really makes as much sense as the truth. So I leave that with you, but there's more things I want to share. You know, there's substantial geological evidence uh, supporting a worldwide flood. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The receding floodwaters would have resulted in rapid drainage, and all of the world's oceans bear evidence. Do you see what I said there? Evidence? Evidence of former lower water levels. levels. And all of the world's rivers and lakes bear evidence of former higher water levels. Exactly what you would expect if there was a global flood. In fact, marine fossils have been found on mountain peaks such as Mount Ararat. How did that happen? Unless it was the rapid flood that was described within the Bible. And by the way, Mount Ararat, 17,000 feet above sea level. These worldwide evidences picture a world emerging from a very recent global flood. And all of these fossils and all of these bones, well, they're, they're captured in these layers that the cataclysm created, and they were captured rapidly because it all happened very rapidly. It makes a whole lot more sense. It actually makes perfect sense because it is the truth. Now, I know there are some Christians that argue against that. They can't just accept the word of God, so they have to step outside the word of God for an example that doesn't, quote-unquote, insult their intelligence. But we know that the scripture says that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. And that is to say that even God's foolishness, even though he's not foolish, supersedes the best that man can come up with. So just to be clear, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a Bible teacher, I actually believe the Word of God. I teach the Word of God. More importantly, I teach people the Word of God because I believe the Word of God is the truth of God. Now, Noah opened a window. And after 40 days, he tried to determine if the ground was dry. And that would make sense. And in doing this, he sent out a raven, which was unable to confirm any dry ground. Then he sent out a dove, which returned without finding dry ground. Let me share with you, what makes a lot of sense is that he would send the raven out first, because ravens are hardy flyers. They're also carrion eaters. That is, they eat dead things like crows and buzzards and vultures. Uh, they could survive indefinitely on all of the corpses that were no doubt floating on the surface of the waters. You see, it's not mentioned here, but think about it. Where did all many of those dead animals were captured within the sediment layers, but not all. And certainly people would have gotten to higher ground or the highest ground they could and tried to swim as long as they could. Certainly birds would have flown as much as they could have until they eventually drowned as well. So all of this kind of points to send out a raven. Well, the, the, the raven doesn't really need to uh, find dry ground because the raven can sustain itself on corpses. So you send out the raven, but it wasn't able to confirm any dry ground either. It didn't bring back anything of that nature. But a dove, doves require fresh vegetation. They're nothing like ravens. Uh, they also need dry ground in order to survive. So the dove comes back because the dove has no place to reside or live or a, a habitation of its own. So then he sent out a, the dove seven days later, and this time it returned with proof of dry ground that olive branch or that olive leaf. An olive tree, by the way, is an extremely hardy plant or tree. Extremely hardy. It can grow and thrive on rocky slopes. And so this is one of the first plants 
or trees that emerges after the flood, fresh, uh, the fresh olive leaf brought back by the dove proved that the land would soon produce abundant plant life. Now, of course, the plants were only brought onto the ark for food for the animals and for Noah and his family. But the plants wouldn't have been completely destroyed because they seed. And then, of course, we know seeds in the earth would soon sprout with adequate sunlight and dry ground. So that means that it was time, or getting very close to time, for them to leave the ark. And then he sent out the dove seven days later. This time it didn't return. It didn't need to. It had found a place to live, a place to survive. And that's the idea here. So... The waters actually prevailed, as we read in this section, for 150 days, and the ark rested, as we're told very explicitly, on the 17th day of the seventh month. I want to share something with you that I find fascinating. I don't want you to make too much of it, but I think it's kind of interesting. You know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the anniversary of this date many years later? That, that exact date? of the calendar. I didn't know that until obviously a couple of years ago I did the research. See, the seventh month, which is mentioned here, is the seventh month of the Jewish civil year. But it was later set to be the first month of the religious year. So the Hebrew calendar, they have a, a religious year and a civil year. The religious year starts with the seventh month of the, of the civil year. And that, of course, we know as the Passover month. And the Passover was on the 14th day of the first month. And of course, Christ rose three days later, which would make it the 17th day of what became the first month, or if you will, the Jewish civil seventh month. Are you confused? Take my word for it. This is, I'm, I'm about to tell you again, it's the same calendar date. I, I don't think that that's a mistake. I think that's just an interesting, not coincidence, but it shows that God knows what he's doing and is doing things in such a way so that we'll see that it's him. And so Jesus rested in the tomb and then rose from the dead on the 17th day of the seventh month. That's the point. The same day that we read uh, that the ark rested. Now, of course, that's important because when the ark rested was a moment when they realized they would be saved. It was the moment they realized all was going to be well that there was hope, there was new life, that everything that God had promised would actually come to pass. The day that Jesus emerged from the tomb was similar. Because the moment the angel said, he is not here, he is risen, he is risen indeed, that same hope in the faithfulness of God was realized by mankind. And so, yes, Mankind at that time was eight people. But the new hope of that moment when the ark rested is a type, a symbol, a picture of that day when Christ would emerge, victorious over sin and death, from the tomb to offer mankind the new hope that can only be found in him. Amen. Amen. Beautiful picture. Well, the waters receded until the first day of the tenth month, as the mountaintops became visible, that must have also been an absolutely wonderful moment to see land for the first time. They knew they were resting on the land, but to see it? And then Noah removed the covering and saw that the earth was dry the first day of the next year. And so we pick it up in verse 14. 
And in verse 14, I'm just going to read through verses uh, 14 through 19, chapter 8. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And then Noah, or excuse me, then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground uh, and all the birds. Everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark one kind after another. That must have been something to see. We talked so much about the flood and the animals of the ark last time. I don't really want to get into that this week. If you're interested, you can log on online and listen to that message. But we learn here that Noah left the ark after seven days of waiting. Remember, before the flood started. Five months of floating. Seven months and ten days of resting. And so Noah left the ark on the 27th day of the second month after the earth had dried completely. I find it interesting that God called Noah and his family and all of the animals out of the ark. You know, he had shut them in, and now he called them out. He had shut them in, and now he called them out. And there's a beautiful picture there as well. Because when we come to Christ and give our hearts to him, he shuts us in. He shuts us in. He makes us his own. But there's a day when he's calling us out. Like Jesus came from the tomb, there'll be a day where we'll be called out. Whether it's called out of these bodies into newness of life, or called out of the earth to be raptured into his presence. There will come a day when all of us who have been shut in will be called out. And we long for that day, we look for that day, but it was God that called Noah and his family and all of the animals out of the ark. He called the animals to do something, to reproduce and increase their numbers on the earth. That was necessary if these animals were going to continue to exist. Now, of course, animals often go extinct in our lifetime. We've seen these species have disappeared. It's sad. Uh, I I don't like to hear that. It always saddens me. Uh, But over time, many species have gone extinct since the ark. But I don't believe that God allowed any species to go extinct before the ark or through the flood. That would defeat the purpose of preserving all life. There may have been some species that disappeared before the flood. But more than likely, every animal, whether it be a fossil we've observed or something we've heard about or witnessed, existed at this time. And as I've mentioned, keep in mind, you only need to have two canines. And they can, through genetic breeding, create all of those wonderful species or subspecies that we witness during the National Dog Show. I'm sure many of you watch that on Thanksgiving. And it's always amazing to me. You know, I see the the Great Dane. It was a really large dog in the dog show this year called the Great Dane. I mean, this thing is like a horse, right? Comes out, right? And you're like, the Great Dane. And you're like, what? And then the Pekingese. And, And you're like, that thing could eat in one gulp. That Great Dane could eat that Pekingese or the Yorkie or the Silky in one gulp. And yet, genetically, they're dogs. That goes to show, they do that through interbreeding. They, they, they do that. Mankind does that. 
But that would happen somewhat naturally on its own as well. So don't think that you needed all of the different subspecies on the ark. You only needed the two main species, and then they could produce through breeding all of the different subspecies. And if you're familiar with genetic variation, you know that to be true. By the way, if you're not familiar with genetic variation, look around. We've been accused of being a rather diverse group. And you know something? I think it's one of our strengths. You know, I'm just going to share from my own heart. One of the most encouraging things, I think, for any person of a genetic variant, that might be the new politically correct way to say skin color <laughs> or ethnic group, is when someone walks in and they're not the only one in their particular shade. I know we shouldn't think this way. In a perfect world, it wouldn't matter. But let's be honest, our culture, the way our world operates, and even especially in America, we're so diverse. It's often that we kind of huddle together in our own particular shades of skin color or ethnic variation. And we feel more comfortable when we look around and everybody looks like us. And sadly, in New Jersey, which is a rather diverse state, in most parts of this state, you're not going to see the genetic variation of God on a Sunday morning. You're going to see a lot of people gathered together, comfortable with others that look like them. Now listen, it's not a bad thing, but I think it's a better thing to be able to come into a place of worship and not feel as if you're the only one like you. So I thank God, and there are many things we're thankful for this year, right? I'm very thankful for the diversity that we have in our fellowship. I think it puts people at ease. It opens up doors to people to come and worship and study the Word of God when they don't feel like they're different than everyone else, but that there's someone that, you know, at least reminds them of themselves. And that's something to be very grateful for. And so I am very thankful for the diversity that we have here in our fellowship because it doesn't exist a few miles from here, just so that you know. I think being in Passaic helps. People are a little disarmed. I think if we were in a more upscale area, some folks might feel a little funny about going there, to be honest. I'm sure that there are people who feel funny about coming to Passaic, but none of you are them, so who cares? <laughs> so look around and you'll see genetic variation. How did that happen? Well, according to God's word, we all come from just a few variants, right? You have Noah and his wife, and they have three sons and they have three wives. So people have tried to extrapolate and say, well, was one son black and one was Asian and one was... No, we'll see next week that God had a plan for genetic variation as well. Well, we're not going to get into that today. You'll have to come back next week. But it's fascinating to me that God had all of this in the works. So when we step away from God's plan and isolate and separate and mistrust one another because of our genetic variation, uh, we really start to live on a hell, a hell on earth. And that's what we're seeing in our world today. People hating one another, mistrusting one another, for silly reasons. Some people don't even know why they hate. They just hate. Oh, we're flying a new flag in protest? Let's get out there. I'm, I'm on the side of the rebels. I'm the side of the people who are discontent, the malcontents. And we see people hating each other for all various different reasons, and yet God has not made us to live in this way. And so if you're having a hard time with it, so am I. I don't, I don't appreciate living in a world where every time I put on the news or, or watch something online, somebody's hitting somebody or yelling at somebody or waving a flag in someone's face or screaming at someone. God has not designed us for that. That is not how we are to interact with one another. 
but genetic variation should be a good thing, can be a good thing, oftentimes becomes problematic because of our wicked, sinful nature. So let's not let those things divide us. And again, I'm so grateful that here, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. Amen? I'm done. That was my little soapbox that I wanted to get on today. But it's something I'm thankful for. So, they all came out of the ark. All of the animals, the people, everybody came out of the ark because God had called them. And then Noah did something that, I have to be honest, when I read this the first time, I was like, what? Look at verse 20. <laughs> then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. That means he did an animal sacrifice. And I have to be honest, my first thought is like, gosh, these poor animals. They made it through the 150 days. What was their purpose in life? Just to be sacrificed? And then I thought about Christ's 30-some-odd years as a man living in this world and all the wickedness that goes with it, being despised and rejected just to be the sacrifice for sin on the cross. Again, Jesus is in every sentence, every word. The rabbis believe that God is in even the spaces between the letters. You'll see Jesus because he said, you search the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life, but they are that which testify of me. So, yes, sacrifice was necessary. It's unfortunate, but it's still necessary. And thank God, God had said, bring seven pair of clean animals, because then whatever animal they sacrificed had to be a clean animal, but also if they only took two, then that animal wouldn't be around anymore, right? But Noah built an altar. He sacrificed some of the clean animals to the Lord. And of course, an altar is a place of surrender and worship to God. That's what an altar is. Having taken seven pairs of every kind of clean animal and every kind of bird, these clean animals were the first living creatures to suffer death after the flood through sacrifice. And so Noah reestablished the principle of substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Well, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 21, God instituted and established the principle of substitutionary atonement when he sacrificed animals in the garden to provide clothes, the skins of animals, for Adam and Eve. That was the way that they were to worship God. How do we know this? Remember, Abel, he worshiped God acceptably, and he did so by taking some of his flock and sacrificing them to God. Cain, on the other hand, didn't want to do that. He took some of the work of his hands. So already mankind had established, or God had established, and mankind had practiced this principle of substitutionary atonement where you learn that something has to die because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sins. Now, what could that possibly point to except the cross of Christ? It points to the idea that something, someone, had to die in order for us to be saved. So this sacrifice on the altar after the ark is very important and extremely necessary 
to perpetuate this principle so that when the day finally came, even after the law and the book of Leviticus and all the sacrifices and all that we read about here, that these things would point to and be fulfilled in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Amen? There you go. That's why this is important. Innocent blood must be shed as a condition of consecration to God. And so we learn there in verse 20 that this was a burnt offering. That is, completely consumed upon the altar in consecration to God. Later, they would have sin offerings and peace offerings and other types of offerings. But here we have the burnt offering, consecration to God. And so was the Lord pleased? Yes, look at verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Yes, parents, from childhood. You ever noticed your kids are evil? More evil on some days than others? It's funny. It's like when kids, kids have their moments, right? Oh, they're so beautiful. And they are. They're beautiful. But they have their moments where they're not so beautiful. And they can be evil, just like you can be evil at times, right? Give them a candy bar. And you'll find out that they become even more evil. What's that? Sugar is like it feeds it, right? I always say to the parents, you know, uh, be careful giving the kids the sweets downstairs during fellowship hour because they're going to be out of here before it kicks in. You're going to take a moment. Speaking of that, just to let you know, everybody brought all of their leftover desserts. So if you're thinking about leaving early today and not coming to fellowship, you might want to think twice. But parents, a warning, your kids are evil. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm being a little silly. We're all evil. We're all, we're all sinners, right? So, but I'll tell you what, sugar doesn't help. So just be careful. I'm going to be down there serving desserts and making sure that they, if, if your kids come to you and say, Pastor Tim said I had to ask you whether I could have a cookie. I love you. I'm just looking out for you. But you're going to have to say no, not me. I don't want to be the bad guy. I'm the guy that hands out gummies and candies and things like that. Anyway, enough of that. So the Lord smelled that pleasing aroma, and he said that every inclination of man's heart, he said, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So there never will be a time where a flood comes and destroys the earth as was experienced at this time. So the Lord was pleased and promised, and that's where we end today on a promise. Because as I said to you regarding the promise of Abraham, God keeps his promises. You can trust God. He's faithful. So when he promises something, he fulfills it. That's the point of today's message. That's the encouragement that we receive through our study today. He promised to never again destroy the earth as as he had done. He would never again curse the ground, despite the sinful nature of mankind. Remember, he had cursed the ground with a worldwide curse following Adam's sin. We studied that in chapter 3. This is called the Edenic curse. Theologians love to come up with fancy terms. It's the curse of Eden, but they say the Edenic curse. It was still in effect, but there would never be another. And what we learn is that Noah, whose name means comfort, Noah had brought comfort or it it sounds like the word for comfort, Noah had brought comfort concerning the ground the Lord had cursed. I want to remind you of a prophecy that was given by his dad. 
In chapter 5, verse 29, we read this. We're actually 28, when Lamech, who was the father of Noah, had lived 182 years, he had a son. And he named, his, uh, he named him Noah, which again, it, it sounds like the word for comfort. It actually means rest, which is interesting, but it sounds like the word for comfort. And he said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. You see, remember in the garden, when God said to Adam, the the ground will be cursed. You're going to get thistles and thorns without trying. You're going to have to cultivate the ground. You're going to have to work. This was a comfort. Noah was the comfort. Why was Noah the comfort? Because Noah was the one that God had ordained to bring mankind through the flood and the judgment. So Noah had, as predicted, as prophesied by his father, had brought comfort concerning the ground that the Lord had cursed. And I'm not going to say it's easier to farm today than it was before the flood, but it's possible. Given the cataclysm and all of the fertilization of the ground through the cataclysm and the dead animals and everything, it might very well be a lot easier to farm today than it was before the flood when God cursed the ground. Of course, I wasn't around, so I don't know, but it's interesting to know that Noah was the one predicted to bring that comfort, and God used him to bring that comfort. God would never again destroy all of the living creatures on the earth with a flood. And then the Lord promised something else. And this is a beautiful promise. Verse 22 He says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Now, I take a few things from this promise. First of all, I'm not worried about the quote-unquote existential threat of climate change. Because the Bible tells me that that's never going to happen. In fact, if I look at the book of Revelation, I learn that What's going to happen to this world ultimately is in God's hands, not in mankind's hands to try to prevent carbon emissions. Having said that, I'm a conservationist. I like to see the earth taken care of. I like to see uh, animals cared for. I don't don't like to see us destroy our planet and pollute our planet. I'm a champion of the environment, but but one thing I know, God's going to keep his promise. Amen? My hope is not in any global organization preventing the destruction of the earth. It's in, it's in Christ. It's in God having promised that will not happen. And so, here's what we learned from verse 22. That the Lord had promised that the current state of the earth would continue as long as it endures. The earth will continue to rotate on its axis and revolve around the sun. Sun came up today. It'll set this evening. Rather early, by the way. Have you noticed that? I think like 4.30 now it gets dark. And I think to myself, my goodness, that is early. So the earth will continue to rotate on its axis. It will continue to revolve around the sun. There will always be a time for planting and a time for harvesting crops. There will always be temperature fluctuations throughout the seasons. There will always be seasonal changes throughout the year. And there will always be sunrises and sunsets each day. Oh, there will one day be a new earth And its curse will be removed forever altogether. But until that day, you can be rest assured, God keeps his promises. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. We're so grateful. Your promises can be relied upon. We can trust you. 
You told us these things, and as we look back, with all the problems in our world, every one of those promises is still happening every day. Every day, every year, we see the same things that you said would always be happening because you said they would. Lord, your promises are faithful. You've always kept every promise you've ever made in your word, and those that haven't been fulfilled will be fulfilled, including your coming again. But you promised to come and to save us, and you did. You hung on that cross, and you died for our sins. You rose again on the third day, as you promised. And so we know that those promises fulfilled give us courage and hope to know that the promise of your return, your imminent return, that is very soon, soon and very soon, is just as faithful. But you also promise that anyone that comes to you, you will in no way cast out. You also promise the truth that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to you but by Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your promises fulfilled. We thank you that you are faithful. And we thank you for your great love for us and all mankind that you would not desire that any perish, but that all come to repentance and all come to everlasting life. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.